Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 33, the passage which Prince read for us earlier. We're actually going to look at two chapters this evening, but the focus will be largely on this chapter 33, which we read. Let's pray. Father God, we come now and we ask for your help. We ask that you would help us understand your word, and by that we mean that you would open our minds to see the truth of it. But Lord, we pray also that you would help us to submit ourselves to what you teach us in your word, that we would stand under your word and its authority. So, Lord, as you come now and speak to us for our encouragement to challenge us, Lord, help us to to stand under your word and receive it as a gift of your grace this evening. Amen. After the evening service a few weeks ago, somebody asked me if the services were being recorded, these evening services. They told me that a friend of theirs had enjoyed um, a couple of the the sermons in the series on the life of Jacob, and they didn't want to miss a week, uh, so they were keen to know if if they could pick it up on a recording. We got talking, and and I was speaking with with this friend, and I, I said, yeah, it's a bit like a soap opera this life of Jacob, you find you don't want to miss a week. You, you want to find out how, how the plot develops, how the characters mature and emerge. We wonder what's going to happen to Jacob. A soap opera, I, I came away from that and I thought, wish I'd never said that. I mean, imagine calling part of God's word a soap opera. I felt a bit wick. But then I was reading a, a commentator on, on the book of Genesis, and I was so relieved when I found Agnes Norfleet, a, a commentator on Genesis, and she, she talked about the, the Jacob story like this. She said, through this tangled family soap opera, God is making a holy people set apart for his purposes. I still don't know if we're right, but at least Agnes stands beside me uh, as people who see this as a, a soap opera She says it's a place where God is making a holy people set apart for his purposes. And that's what we believe is going on in the life of Jacob. God setting him apart, transforming him, and making something of him. And that is what we believe is going on in our lives from one day to the next and from one week to the next and from one year to the next and through the decades. God making something of us, transforming us, making us more like Jesus. Last week we reached uh, probably the pivotal and very center of God's work in the life of Jacob, chapter 32, and I thank Monty for, for dealing with that for us last week. The change in Jacob's life is so fundamental that he undergoes a change of name in chapter 32. And that's huge. In the Hebrew mind, your name captures your personality, your character. So when a person changes their name, it shows that they have changed 
and our changing. Jacob the deceiver, you remember that's what his name means, he becomes Israel, the one who struggles with God. And I think, I, I find that quite strange, that this, this guy would have his name changed to Israel, the one who struggles with God, that God's people, the name that would be given to them is those who struggle with God. I imagined it would be something like those whom God favors or, or those whom God blesses. But no, Israel, God's people are defined as those who struggle with God. As I was thinking about that a bit, and particularly in terms of the life of Jacob, it struck me the reason that God ultimately blesses Jacob is because Jacob is absolutely and doggedly committed to knowing God's blessing on his life. He struggles all his life. If you think back through it, what you know of it, it's one long struggle to receive the blessing of God. He struggles with his father. Do you remember? To to coax a, a blessing from him. He struggles with his brother. He deceives his brother. So much does he want the family blessing. He struggled with his uncle Laban. And now it's all brought together in chapter 32 in one one massive struggle characterized by this struggle with God. Still he's struggling and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Have you ever said that to God? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've said, I won't go any further, Lord, unless you show me that you're with me. Unless you show me clearly that you will go with me to bless me. Isn't that the great thing about Jacob? He doesn't pay lip service to God. He doesn't tiptoe around God. He's not polite with God. God's not his Sunday hobby. He wants God's blessing. Nothing matters more to him than to know the blessing of God in his life. I think these are the only people who will have God's blessing. These ones who will settle for nothing else, nothing less. Isn't this what Jesus calls us to? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Leave all the other stuff. God will worry about that. He'll sort that out. But seek first the kingdom of God. Make it your priority and your goal. Jesus calls us to be like Jacob, to refuse to live without God's blessing, to cling to God and to cling to him and to cling still and to struggle and to not let go, to say, I will not let you go until you give me your blessing. Have you got to a point in your life where the blessing of God is a matter of indifference to you? Where you don't really care too much? Have you? Let Jacob be a a wonderful icon to us here, somebody who calls us back to a struggling walk with God. Let's move quickly now into chapter 33. As chapter 32's 
ending, the sun has risen above Peniel. And this is the dawn of a, a significant day. It's a day that's been 20 years coming for Jacob. It's the day he's going to see his, his brother, his twin Esau. The narrator keeps the tension at breaking point right at the start of the chapter. In verse 1, he reminds us Esau's coming, but he's coming with 400 men. Esau's coming. Jacob has every reason to be afraid, but I don't think he is afraid in this chapter. Meeting with God has given him a new confidence. Back in chapter 32, verse 7, he was afraid. We, we learn there that Jacob, he planned to split his family into two. And the strategy was simply this. If we split into two, even if one half of us is wiped out, one half survives. That gives us some idea of the level of fear with which Jacob was approaching Esau. But that's all gone because what he does now is he brings his family all together. And in these early verses, we see that he, he, he just plans how his family are going to approach his brother Esau. He arranges them in order of his affections. First are are the maidservants with their children, then Leah and her children, and then finally Rachel, whom he loves most of all, and her son Joseph in the rear. So he he has them arranged in, in reverse order of his affections. But then, interestingly, he goes to the front and he leads his family towards his brother Esau. A couple of times so far in this short series, we have seen how the men have given poor leadership to their families. Isaac, you'll remember, was a weak father. He was dominated by his wife. He was weak in how he dealt with his sons. Jacob, at times, has been very weak with his family. It was particularly demonstrated in the chapter where we learned about the birth of his children. He became just a pawn as his wives bargained for his attentions. But here, Jacob's different. Here he takes the initiative, he leads the way, and he even faces danger if that's going to be the best way to lead his family. All of a sudden, Jacob's giving a wonderful lead in his family. How is that? Well, I think the biblical text isn't making a great mystery of this. Why is it that at this point Jacob's leading his family uh, with such vigor and purpose? It's because he's walking in the presence of God. Look back to 32 verse 11. Jacob prays about what's going to happen on this fateful day. He says to the Lord, save me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid that he'll come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. Jacob's changed his whole approach because he's prayed and he's confident now that God will go with him into this situation. He's a newfound strength and it's born out of an assurance of God's presence with him. Jacob gets his family organized. It seems a a bit strange to us, but, but this is how he does it. And still Esau's coming. At first, the first thing Jacob saw of Esau was just a cloud on the distance as these 400 men walked on the dry and dusty ground. But now he can see their their shapes more clearly and he can see the colors of their party. And he sees at the head of the crowd someone whom he recognizes. 
It's Esau. 20 years later, he can still pick out his brother at a distance, and he can tell it's him by the way he walks. As soon as Esau picks out Jacob at the head of the crowd, Esau stops, and he stops the men with him. Jacob notices that something's happening, and he stops and stops his family behind him. For what seems like an eternity, the two men stand and they stare at one another. Esau is the first to break the standoff. He's the first out of the blocks. He sprints towards his brother Jacob. He runs hard. He runs, and as he approaches his brother, he leaps and jumps on him. He almost kills Jacob. So powerful is the grip of his hug. Jacob could feel nothing. It's only Esau sweat, his beard, his face, and his breath. Esau holds on to Jacob, and he breaks down in tears. It's a wonderful moment. 20 years in the making. Jacob, who had ripped off his older brother of his entire inheritance. Esau, who 20 years earlier had chased his younger brother out of the house in a murderous rage. Here now, the two embrace. They're reconciled. Esau's, picture, Esau's welcome back of Jacob here is a wonderful, wonderful picture and a foreshadowing of the grace of God welcoming the unworthy. Do you remember when Jesus told a story in which he wanted to tell us about God's grace for undeserving sinners? He told us about a father, a father whose son had left the family home years earlier, who had taken the inheritance with him and had squandered it. After years of waiting, the father still waited, looking every day onto the horizon to see whether his son might one day return. We read in Luke 15 that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. God in the Father does for each one of us what Jacob receives in the welcome of his brother Esau. It's a wonderful, wonderful moment because it speaks to us of that, that moment when we receive the undeserving grace of God. Throughout these last chapters, we've seen mounting evidence that God is at work in Jacob's life and that he's changing him. I, I see three strands of evidence. We're not going to go through chapter 33 verse by verse, but we'll, we'll follow these three threads of evidence that God is changing this man, Jacob. First of all, we see Jacob giving credit to God for everything. Whenever Esau sees the women and the children with Jacob, he asks him, who are these? 
And Jacob replies, they're the children God has graciously given me. Jacob knows that his family are a gift from God. Do do we know that? Do we know that this wife or this husband and these children that we have are a gift? Jacob does. And he, he mentions it and says it to his brother Esau. He knows that his wealth is due to God's goodness to him. Look at verse 11. Please accept the present that was brought for you. For God has been gracious to me and given me all I need. Friends, I say this often in my preaching because, the, because God's word flags it up for us time and time again. Gratitude to God is a sure sign that we're growing towards maturity. And the absence of gratitude to God is a sure sign that we, we aren't growing in the knowledge of God. Whenever Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae, he said to them, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted in him, built up in him, strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul makes gratitude the pinnacle of Christian maturity. The pinnacle, the goal. People who know God know that they have much to be thankful for. There's another thread of evidence, a second one, that Jacob is being transformed in his walk with God. He now values relationships more than property. Last week, Monty made it clear to us that the gift that Jacob sent ahead to Esau was a massive gift. It was a sizable part of his, his own personal wealth. He had to remortgage to be able to, to make this gift to his brother Esau. In verse 8, Esau asks him why he sent this extravagant gift. Jacob answers, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. He simply wants to restore a broken relationship. Whenever Esau says a polite no thanks, Jacob repeats the appeal in verse 10. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. When Esau finally accepts the gift and the two have arranged to move on, Jacob turns down Esau's offer of an escort. Why do that, he asks in verse 15. Just let me find favor in your eyes, my Lord. What does Jacob want? Nothing. Only to find his brother's favor. He wants to be restored in that relationship. Twenty years broken with his brother. Friends, there's no coincidence here that when, when Jacob meets God, very soon after that, He's all about restoring relationships with the people around him. Meeting God and restoring our relationships with God's people go hand in hand. They always did. Isn't that why when the lawyer came and asked Jesus, what's the most important command? Jesus said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. Too often, 
we try to separate these inseparables. We imagine that we can do a good job of loving God or even are doing a good job of loving God. At times when we are not loving the people God has given us. We want to love God, that spiritual, ethereal experience of what it is to be spiritual. But we don't want the hassle of our neighbors, our colleagues, our family, our in-laws, and the people in the pews beside us or near us. We imagine that loving God has nothing much to do with loving other people. In his first letter, John tells us to catch ourselves on. He says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Jacob's learning to give God credit and to be grateful to God. He's learning to to love the people around him, to value relationships. And there's a third and a final strand of evidence that he's being transformed. It emerges in the final verse of the chapter. He's arrived safely now in the promised land. He's been reconciled with his brother Esau. So what does Jacob do? He worships We read in verse 20 that he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And the footnote tells him that he's naming this place after the God who's become the center of his life. God, the God of Israel. Now remember, there is no nation at this point. Israel's not a nation, it's a person. This is Jacob's new name, Israel. Whenever he names this place El Elohe Israel, it's like me saying God, the God of Christoph. Or like Fiona saying God, the God of Fiona. Whenever we take this phrase on our lips, it's like saying God is the God of Stanley or the God of Dorothy or God is the God of Danny or of Nicola. When we take this phrase on our lips, then we have the only appropriate posture. God becomes God once more, and we are his people. That's what it is to worship. It's just to get the world back in the right order, to allow that God is God and that we are his people. Jacob is growing in God. It's it's wonderful to see it in chapter 33. And we've seen three strands there. He gives credit to God for everything. He's learning to value relationships. And he's worshiping. I find Genesis really frustrating. I'd love to just stop there. Chapter 34 is a bit of a howler. But it's there. So we're going to have a quick look at it before we, we finish this evening. We're not going to read it. Let me try and give you a very quick synopsis. Jacob has at least one daughter among all the sons that we know of. She's a daughter of Leah, and her name is Dinah. One day, Dinah went to meet some friends in the city of Shechem, the place near where Jacob had set up his camp. 
Now, the son of the ruler of the area, confusingly enough, is also called Shechem. So look out for that as I try and explain this to you. He rapes Dinah. Shechem realized soon enough as well that he wanted to marry Dinah. So he says to his dad, get me this girl as my wife. Meanwhile, Jacob hears about it, and he doesn't immediately tell his sons. He seems to hesitate, and and maybe he's afraid of their reaction. By the time Hamar, the ruler of Shechem, comes to Jacob, Jacob's 11 sons are gathered around him. They're in from the fields. And whenever they hear this news, they're outraged. This isn't acceptable. No one treats our sister like this. Now, Hamar, the the ruler of Shechem, he displays a complete lack of understanding of who God's people are, who Jacob's family are. He not only suggests that Jacob give Dinah to his son, but that he goes on to say that Jacob's people should stay and should intermarry with the people of Shechem. Uh, Now, that's exactly the thing that the last two generations, Abraham and Isaac, have been trying to avoid, intermarriage. So this guy has got totally the wrong end of the stick. Shechem, suddenly all romance and valor, he says that he'll do anything if only he can have Dinah as his wife. So Jacob's sons, we're told in the the Bible passage that they're deceitful in their response. So they take after their dad in this sense. Do you remember he is the, the great deceiver? Jacob and Jacob's sons give Shechem an ultimatum. He says, you want our sister? If you want our sister, then be like us. Be circumcised. Become like one of us. You and the whole city. So with all the speed of a man in love, Shechem goes to the next meeting of the city council. Now, I don't fancy being in his shoes here, going to the city council and saying, fellas, here's the thing. What about all getting circumcised? But, but that's his job. He goes to the city council. Now, he, he puts it to them like this. He says, think of it, fellas. If we intermarry with them, we'll get Jacob's daughters. We'll have his livestock and his wealth and all the animals that you see out there outside the city walls. I wouldn't want to be a fly on the wall of that particular uh, committee meeting. I'm imagining that there was a time for questions. Uh, there was a long debate But eventually there was a proposer uh, that um, the whole city be circumcised. And yes, a seconder emerged and it was unanimously carried. The men of the city all went under the knife. Three days later, and apparently that's the most painful time. Um, I don't see anybody nodding their head to confirm that, so I'll take the the commentator's word for that. At the time when, when these men are most in their pain, Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, take their swords, go into the city, and kill every male in the place. They take the wives and the children and all the property of the city with them. They rape the city in retribution for the rape of their sister. That's Genesis 34. It's one of those Old Testament nasties, which there, there are a number of in God's word. 
What about Jacob in all of this? The chapter doesn't paint Jacob in a very positive light. I'd love to be able to tell you that after all the triumphs of chapter 32 and 33, that Jacob never fails again and that he is the boy, that he goes on to his grave with an unblemished record after his conversion at Peniel. That's not the case. He fails here on many counts. What's he doing so close to a Canaanite city that his daughter finds friendship there? What kind of a peer group has he allowed her to fall in with that she goes to visit Canaanite women in the city? Girls of a marriageable age in this culture should never have been allowed to make a journey like this alone from a rural place into a pagan city. What's he doing? He's not protecting his daughter. Then as we go on after the terrible rape, there's no mention of a reaction from Jacob. Is he afraid of losing favor with the king of the city? Does that matter more to him than than his own daughter? And, And whenever this scheme is presented to him, let's intermarry. Let's just bring the two families together. There's no mention of a a, a problem on Jacob's part. Is he complicit with that? Is he happy enough to go ahead, saved from that only by the wrath of his sons? Friends, Jacob's behavior here is no better than the behavior of the Canaanites around him. He doesn't demonstrate any commitment to different or to higher standards. He only wants this thing sorted out in a way that won't lead to too much strife or any expense to him. In this incident, Jacob is probably more a diplomat than a man of God. No sign of him loving God or loving his neighbor. That brings to an end the the stuff that we want to look at this evening, and it almost brings to an end the whole of this soap opera this life of Jacob that we've been looking at. Again this evening, I think we've seen how every day this walk with God is going to be. What was this evening all about? What what were the key things going on? It's about Jacob's relationship with his brother, with his daughter, with his sons, and with the neighbors who live in the community around him. It's as simple as that. Jacob is learning and often failing in his relationships with these people. We're going to be like Jacob as we continue to walk with Jesus Christ. We're going to have some of those successes that Jacob had in his dealings with Esau. I'm guessing, and I'm sure we will, have some of those failings that he had with his dealings with his his sons and his daughter and the people of Shechem. And yet, this soap opera of your life and of mine goes on. Why is that? It's because God is using this tangled family soap opera to make a holy people. This is how God does it. This is how holy people emerge. It's through the ordinary and real and messy and complicated stuff of our lives. God's setting us apart. He's transforming us 
He's making us more like Jesus. Friends, let's not give up hope. However complicated and messy and unholy the situations we find ourselves in are, let's instead turn and look to God as Jacob did and find his presence with us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for that brutal honesty, honesty beyond what we can bear sometimes of your word. Lord, we thank you that chapters like Genesis 34 are recorded to remind us of the harsh realities of life. But Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of these messy times and of these failings, you promise to go with us. And Lord, make us, even in his failings, make us like Jacob in this regard, that we struggle with you, that we cling to you and that we pray and continue to pray. I will not let you go until you bless me. Lord, bless us. Bless us in that you draw us into your family and make us more and more your people. Bless us with your presence, even in our failings and our flaws. But Lord, go with us. Go with us this Sunday night, Sunday the 11th of March, 2007. Go with us into Monday. Whether we relish the prospect of it, or fear it. Go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.